0: Welcome back to Sermon Notes. Garland here, and I've got Michael with me hey, Garland. this morning. And uh, we are off and rolling in our four-week study of this fascinating little narrative in the Old Testament called the Book of Esther. And so, uh, yeah, we kicked it off last week. How you feeling about
1: Esther, Michael? I'm enjoying it. We had our first—no— uh, it was not our first. It was my first because I was out of town last week. This was the second meeting of the, the Thursday morning men's Bible study today. And, man, the conversation was great, and... Over and over, guys were saying, man, just to study this, just to actually spend some time, not just read through it in my read through the Bible in a year, spend two days reading through Esther, but to drop down and really consider it, man, it's rich. It A little bit, Garland, reminds me of when we studied Ruth last year, and some of us were surprised at how much we uncovered in that little book, and Esther
0: kind of feels similar to me as far as the, from the Bible study standpoint. Yeah, what's interesting to me is even just looking down at, at my Bible here, like all sorts of strange names and places and stuff that's hard to pronounce, and yet these these narratives, they're just so well written, and they 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 make you ponder, and they make you almost want to discuss them. And so I had a lot of people last week, um, just going, I, "This is so fun and fascinating." And who would have fucked it? You know, well, here we are reading these Old Testament narratives. So yeah, when we were all in college
1: and. We were learning about literary devices and stuff, and we were all thinking, Nobody needs well, this. Am I ever yeah. gonna use it? <laughs> and now here we are. As we look at the book, not only is the inspired word of God, which it is, but also it's just a beautiful piece of ancient literature. You're mm. right. It really is amazing.
0: So as we look at it, uh, last week we brought in, uh, we kind of dropped into the story. And it, for those of you who brought up literary devices, um, most scholars agree this this story takes the shape. But if there's two basic kinds of stories, there's a tragedy and a comedy. Uh, a tragedy is usually where things, um, they maybe start off in an okay place, they kind of get a little better. And so they, they kind of go up and then they end terribly. And so it's the classic drama um, or the classic old, uh, like Romeo and Juliet. That is,
1: literally, I was going to say, yeah. think Ev- Romeo and everything Juliet. Everything
0: ends in tragedy. Everybody's dead. Yeah, you end. leave, but it makes you think. And they're really well told in some of our favorite movies, kind of our tragedies. Right. This one is the opposite of that. This is a comedy. And so in a comedy, the, the action line starts in a good place. It descends into the bad place, but it comes back to the good place. And so it's a U-shape in that sense. And uh, like every romantic comedy, you know, as you read, Or if you watch a romantic comedy, those movies, um, you know, it starts in an okay place. You watch the relationship develop. Then it gets really kind of messy, and there's all these problems introduced, and you're supposed to wonder, will they get together? But in the end, of course, they get together, and that's how Esther's going to feel. And so last week, we began kind of the descent into some of the hard parts of the book that'll set up the turn. So catch us up. Esther's going to be given an amazing opportunity here in uh, our study this week. Um, It's probably one of the more famous Parts of the book of Esther is what you get to teach this week. I'm jealous. Um, so, how do we get here?
1: Yeah, that's great. I, you know, and I'm thinking about community group leaders, um, and which you and I both are doing that as well. And for a community group leader, maybe your group hasn't met, and maybe this week, this Sunday, or during the week next week, you're going to gather for the first time and you're thinking, how are we going to catch up in the Esther story? Like it's going to be really hard next, like say your first meeting is next week to go, Hey, let's open our Bibles to Esther chapter five. Um, and so what I did this morning with the guys and I plan to do with my community group, um, it's pretty straightforward and we'll do it right now together, which is to think about these first three chapters in terms of the main characters. And so as we've established, um, this is taking place at Susa. It's the capital of the Persian Medo-Persian empire. It's the largest empire in the world world has seen to this point. It stretches from India all the way over into Ethiopia and Northern Africa. And we meet this King Xerxes and um, Garland, you highlighted last week, we're introduced to a man. He He's powerful. His reign is large. The parties he throws are like the world has never seen <laughs> the splendor, six months of yeah, gluttony it, and it, drunkenness. And it, it feels like, I mean, I haven't counted them, but it feels like there's 200 adjectives to describe right, right. the setting. <laughs> it's it, the the writer wants us to see that man this guy knows how to put on a show And yet, when he summons his queen, Vashti, uh, she refuses to come. And so here's this king who's the ruler of all of the known world, so to speak, and yet his own queen won't come into the room when he calls for her. And so he's got all these advisors around him, all these yes men, and they're constantly telling him what he wants to hear. And so one of them says, you know what we ought to do, king? We ought to round up a bunch of girls and get you a brand new harem. And he says, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. So in comes Esther. We're introduced to Esther. She's one of these girls brought in um, to serve, to pleasure the king, so to speak. And we're introduced to Mordecai. So Mordecai is her relative. Sometimes we say uncle, cousin, you know, the Bible uses these kind of vague words for relatives, um, but he's related to her and he's raised her. She's an orphan. Her, her parents have both been killed. Um, so here they are, Jews living in a foreign land under a foreign oppressor. And now she's been taken into the palace. And um, you could say things just work out for her. Although we're we as the reader are expected to see the hidden hand of God behind this, but the king's very attracted to her and actually names her queen. So now Esther's queen. She's inside the palace. In the meantime, um, Mordecai uncovers a plot uh, to assassinate the king, and the the plot turns out to be true. Um, The would-be assassins are executed, and Mordecai's name is recorded in the king's annals. The very next chapter, chapter 3, it begins with, after these things, King Xerxes promoted, we expect it to be Mordecai, but it's not. It's this guy named Haman, and Haman comes into the story. And Haman, um, is an, uh, he's linked with an ancient enemy of the Jews, whether it's a literal physical descent or it's a, a literary rhetorical device. The writer wants us to see, man, this guy's like King Agag, who brought down, he, he brought Saul's kingdom. Saul lost his kingdom over Agag, an enemy of the Jews. Now here's Haman, whether he's a literal or a figurative descendant, and um, we have Mordecai, who's a descendant of the same tribe as Saul. He's a Benjamite, just like Saul. And so these this ancient story is replaying itself
0: 600 or so years after what happened with Saul and Agag. So if you're wanting to catch your community group up and do a flyover, chapter one, paint the scene of Xerxes. Chapter two, introduce the Jewish characters, Mordecai and Esther. Chapter three, here comes Haman. And that, if you think of it in terms of chapter chunks, that'll kind of catch you up to where we are with our characters. And now it's all going to start to swirl and mix as we turn into the end of chapter three and four. Yeah, so
1: what happens in the, in the end of three is Haman is elevated. Mordecai refuses to bend a knee. And I think there's two options as to why. We're not told why. I think one, it could be, he just doesn't respect this guy. He's like, I'm, just, I'm not going to show honor to this clown. This guy's a joke. Or he's a Jew, and Jews do not bend the knee to representatives of pagan gods, pagan religions, um, especially if he knows that Haman um, is linked to this ancient Amalekite enemy, King Agag. So either way, I kind of like if it's the first one, though.
0: Like if one day we're hanging out with Mordecai, we get to ask him, he's like, I just didn't like the dude. There's no way I'm bowing to that joker. Right. Like that'd be kind of, that'd, right. that'd be kind of fun. And it uh, actually yeah. says in the text <laughs> that, love that all the
1: other guys who kind of hang in the King's gate with him, they're
0: like, dude, you got to bow yeah, down yeah, to him. Yeah, and he's yeah. like,
1: no, it's not going to happen.
0: Is this, this why narratives are fun? Cause right. it, it doesn't say everything. You got to kind of lean in. This is what I like about this. Yeah, okay, sure. Going. There's a little
1: grit to it. <laughs> yeah. And so, so Haman decides, man, it's not enough just to kill Mordecai, which he probably could have. Um, He's going to go for it. He's going to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. And so he kind of cajoles this pliable king. We've already seen this king's kind of a joke when you get past all of the the facade of greatness. And um, he basically says to the king, hey, um, there's a group of people in your kingdom. They're troublemakers. They don't follow your rules. We got to do something about it. And just to sweeten the pot, I'll throw in 10,000 talents. I'll throw in a little cash to sweeten the deal. And the king says, listen... He's such a strong ruler. He doesn't even ask any questions. He literally gives him his signet ring, the thing that makes Allah a law. And he says, here, just go do whatever you want. Like, I feel like Xerxes, he just wants to keep the party going. Yeah. Um, he doesn't care about the Jews. He doesn't care about Haman's plot. He just wants to have another, he wants to throw back another glass or whatever. <laughs> and so he he Haman issues this decree that in the, the last month of the year, on a certain day that's been chosen by the roll of the dice, literally, the dude is, is predicting and planning a genocide based on the roll of the dice. Every Jew will be killed. It says in the text, young and old, male and female, on a single day, every single Jew will be killed. And that brings us to chapter four. So in chapter four, Mordecai hears about the proclamation, and he is sitting in the king's gate as close as he can get legally in sackcloth and ashes, a sign of mourning, of grief. It's like the ultimate display of, of um, a broken spirit in their culture. And so Esther sends a eunuch, a messenger, who comes to him and is like, what is going on? So he tells him, and it's interesting, Garland, in chapter 4, um, it all takes place with messengers running back and forth. Esther and Mordecai are never face-to-face in this conversation. And it, you know, one writer noted, it both slows the action, but it increases the tension. As we picture Mordecai in his sackcloth and ashes waiting for this messenger to come back. And so um, he, he, for the first time in the book, tells Esther, uh, you need, here's what you need to do. He hasn't told her to do anything before. He says, you need to go in and tell the king to spare your people, which is going to mean Esther outing herself as a Jew. She's not revealed her Jewish identity inside the palace so far. And so Esther replies to him and tells him, um, she kind of implies, I don't know if you understand what you're asking. And she says, uh, if you just walk in there, in verse 11, she says, if you just walk in there and he doesn't want you there, you're executed on the spot. That applies to everybody. And oh, by the way, he hasn't asked to see me for 30 days. It's been a month since Xerxes has summoned Esther into his presence. And so Esther's temptation, I think, is to do nothing. And I think we've all been there, haven't we? We've all had that moment where we feel like, I need to speak up. I need to say something. What's being said about the Lord or about this cultural issue? Or, or I, I need to speak into this person's life. But if I do... I might lose standing with these people. I might lose my job. I might get in trouble. People in my neighborhood might think I'm weird. Whatever it is, Esther has that same temptation. I'm just—I
0: don't know if I should say anything. It seems so dangerous. And one of the reasons we we wanted to read Esther and Daniel, and then we're going to read First Peter, <clears throat> is we want <clears throat> to we want to draw. We're not we're not living in an in ancient Persia as uh, as exiled Jews. So I recognize that, but we we want to ask tough questions about ourselves through ancient narrative. And just as you even drop in right there, um, that that's the tension I feel when reading it. And so as you're reading this and your discipleship or your small group, um, don't, don't move too quickly. You know, let the tension build and then start asking questions. What would I do? How would I be feeling? Where, when do I feel that way in my life now? And just, I mean, that's a, for a great discussion. Um, it sets it up right there.
1: Yeah, and then in 13, 13- we really see Mordecai's, I don't know if you want to call it his theology. This morning I called it his worldview, but he says in verse 13, Esther, don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone among all the Jews will escape. And I think, again, to put ourselves in that position, we do that. We think, ah, this isn't going to affect me. You know, i I'm not going to lose my assets. I'm not going to lose my job. I'm not going to, I'm too smart to get sick. I I know how to avoid this. Like whatever it is, I think we all have a tendency to think, if I just keep my head down and stay out of this, I'm going to be fine. I don't know what's going to happen to everybody else, but I'll be okay. And Mordecai says, hey, don't think that just because you're in the palace, you're going to escape. Then verse 14, he says, and get this, this is where we really see Mordecai's faith. If you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. And then think about, remember, she's an orphan. You and your father's family will perish. The ESV says your father's house. Your, your, the lineage of your family will end in you if you do nothing. Man, think about how that must stick in the heart. I think he chose those words intentionally because he knows what that would mean to a girl who's an orphan. And and he says famously, "And who knows? Who knows but that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this." And so this is a this is the turning point, I think of the first part of this narrative like what's going to follow is the turning point of the larger story but some really significant things happen here one we see that mordecai is holding on to his faith in all the promises of the old testament we saw back in chapter three no chapter two we saw back in chapter two mordecai is actually the fourth generation in exile it was his great grandfather kish which i would love to have a grandpa kish that's an awesome name Better than something like Chad. I know. Yeah, I want to go over to Grandpa Kish's house and one drive a One of my best tractor. friends
0: is named Chad. That's why I throw that out to him. Yeah,
1: that was just for him. <laughs> Hopefully my brother-in-law will not take offense. <laughs> Grandpa Kish was the one who came over in the exile. He's, he's, he's the third generation, probably born in exile, or lived his whole life in exile. And so, same for Esther. And here they are, holding on to their Jewish identity, believing the promises of Yahweh. He says... Yahweh's not going to let the Jews be wiped off the face of the earth. He's gonna he he does his name never comes up in the book, but it's implied. As you said, we have to read between the lines. A deliverer will arise. God will provide, is what he's essentially saying. And so if it's not you, Esther, you may die, and I may die, and our whole family line may be extinguished, but God's plan is going to triumph. And so he sends that message back to Esther. And of course, she famously Replies back to him, um, fast again. What's the implication? And pray. Fasting and prayer always go together in the Old Testament. But she says, fast for three days, and I'll I'll do I'll fast as well. And she says, and then I'll go in. And famously, if I perish, I perish. And we're going to see a whole new Esther starting in chapter five. Right. And so I don't want to get too far ahead because there's plenty to say about chapter four, but. Before this, we've seen a young woman who's been carried along by whatever you want to call it, fate, circumstance. She's made no decisions. There's been no point. She's done what people have told her, whether it was the eunuchs, Mordecai, the king. Um, But now she's taking a stand. If I die, I die, but I'm going to stand up for God's people. And then what we're going to see next, I'm looking forward to talking about in community. She's going to beat Haman and Xerxes at their own game. And it's almost all her work. It's all, all her, her planning, work. Yeah. She is going to masterfully play the game of banquets and drinking and decrees and promises, and she's going to completely flip the script. She is going to take you know, what a literate critic would call agency. She is going to have agency now. She's no longer going to be a pawn in this story. She's actually going to be the primary driver of the narrative from this point forward, and it's all because Mordecai reminded her that God is in control, and that His sovereign plan is going to be worked out. And so, as you were saying a moment ago, Garland, for us, we live this side of the cross. God has once and for all defeated our enemy sin, our enemy death. Jesus has already won the battle, and yet we live in a time and place where God is sovereignly in control. The battle's been won, and yet we're called to make courageous decisions. We're called to do things that go against the culture in which we live. We're called to take a stand. And just like Mordecai says to Esther, if we don't, God's plan's not going to be thwarted, but I might miss out on my opportunity to see what God's going to do. And I love what Mordecai says, who knows? And I was thinking about this, who knows what God might do if I share Christ with somebody that I'm really nervous about bringing it up, who knows what God might do. If I say, you know what I'm going to do and I'm going to open my home, I'm going to invite my neighbors. I'm going to have a community group. Who knows what God might do. If I say to my child, yes, you can go on that FSM mission trip that I'm really nervous for you to travel during the tail end of a pandemic to a place that could be dangerous, but who knows what God might do in that space. And so that, that thinking that Mordecai has, God will prevail And who knows what he might do if we faithfully follow him. Man, that's a great challenge that I've just been kind of marinating in as i prepared to teach this. And I think it's a really powerful thought for us as followers of Jesus.
0: So catching us up where we're at in the story, you've got the Persians just banquet party like crazy. And here you've got the Jews fasting. And we're going to see that reversed, actually. That's going to be one of the... You actually can trace the the story of Esther through food. Food and drink. Trace it through uh, either the abundance or the lack thereof. Um, We find ourselves in this suspenseful place this week. I'm assuming you're going to leave them with a little bit of suspense. as What's going to happen next? And... uh, it's what makes great stories, great stories. And so we're going to, like we did with Ruth a year ago, for those of you that weren't here, uh, we're going to we gonna hold back the next part of the story and uh, we're going to read it kind of as it unfolds. So uh, join us this Sunday. I I say this and, and I, I don't think I would have said it, like it's probably a fun series to bring friends and neighbors. And uh, I had a friend tell me that was here this Sunday. They brought somebody that doesn't normally go to church and doesn't really like church. And they were like, his statement was that was dope. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> and so the guy likes history and thought the story was cool. And so who doesn't like a isn't good it? Good. Story? Yeah. Isn't like, it good. So sometimes we, we all love Paul and Paul's letters and me too. Um, but th- they're kind of dense and sometimes it's not, it's not as easy to kind of get to once you wade through some of the names and set yourself in the right spot here. Um, I think the story of Esther just, it, it just wants to be told. Yeah, so. and the way it's sparsely
1: told. So as you correctly pointed out last week in your teaching, it's meant to be told. Every year Jews still tell this story at Purim, this festival they have. Um, it's it's an oral tradition type story. It reads kind of like a play. Characters kind of come on and off the set. But the way it's told so sparsely gives us so much opportunity to wonder wonder about their motivation, wonder what's going on. Like, how did, how did Esther and Mordecai know that they could trust this eunuch to carry these messages back and forth? What's oh, that's his, good. Yeah. what's his, yeah. what's his story? How did they know that he wasn't just going to go straight to Haman? Um, it, There's all these little details that are left to our imagination, um, what one of our our colleagues would call our sanctified imagination, that as we read the Bible, as we pray and ask the Lord to open it up to us, man, there's things that we can just
0: wonder about and and imagine how it might have been, and it really brings the story to life. Well, I can't wait. I can't wait to, uh, to, to hear it told again and to sing, around, uh, sing songs around this story being told. Uh, so join us this Sunday. Uh, join us in your personal devotion, in your discipleship, and in your small group. And let's continue our journey through the story of Esther. Have a great week, everyone.